I'm Lynn Harder, host of Defining Moments, a podcast produced by WOUB Public Media. Humans are storytellers. We tell stories to make sense of birthing and dying and everything in between. This podcast features stories about health and healing. It grew out of my desire to disrupt the silence that too often surrounds vulnerability. Join me as guests and I explore what it means to live well in the midst of inescapable illness and hardship. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Joe Bianco. Joe is a clinical psychologist and an associate professor of social medicine at the Ohio University Heritage College of Osteopathic Medicine. His work focuses on trauma-informed care. His professional world collided with his personal one two years ago when his then 11-year-old son, Andrew, was diagnosed with rhabdomyosarcoma. After 12 months of grueling treatment, Andrew passed away. Joe, you are an award-winning teacher and author. You're committed to fostering inclusive and holistic care. You've worked with Medicaid to integrate trauma-informed preparation for future physicians and, and for physicians on the front lines. But more importantly, you are a father a husband, a sibling, and a son. I am honored to call you a friend. As we continue to grieve the loss of, of Andrew and celebrate his legacy, I am deeply, deeply grateful for your presence today and your willingness to invite listeners into your journey. Um, thank you, Joe, for your presence. So... Every three minutes, a child is diagnosed with childhood cancer. Every three minutes. It is the number one disease killer among children. Childhood cancers of all types have increased 24% in the last 40 years. Yet the number of treatments have remained steady, almost non-existent. These statistics are, are staggering, but for me, what is more potent are the stories behind those statistics, the individuals and the families who have suffered and lived through cancer, its care, and, and sometimes what remains in the aftermath. You and your family found yourself on the wrong side of these statistics about two years ago. And your Andrew was diagnosed with rhabdomyosarcoma. Can you take us back to that moment, Joe, when you heard those words, your son has cancer? Like looking back on, on this moment now, two years later, what lingers in your memory? You know, it's interesting because we didn't have that exact singular moment mm. when we found that he had cancer. What we had was a, a very strange unfolding of uh, events and a sort of, I guess you would call it a progressive reveal. Um, so to give a little context, in March of 2018, he had 
been playing and had um, an injury um, to his lower abdomen and pelvis, and that caused some internal bleeding. He was in Children's Hospital in Columbus um, for about two weeks, um, and he had been scanned and a lot, and they were excellent at monitoring his um, healing and his progress. Um, and then they released him home and he wasn't going to be able to go back to school that day, that year. They released him home with, um, just very large hematomas or large kind of blood clots that had, uh, come about because of this accident. And so he stayed home and we took care of him at home. And, um, they told us to expect about a good six months for it, for these blood clots to kind of melt away and resolve. Fast forwarding to March, no, to May, just from March to May, um, one of those hematomas started to bleed. So we took him back to Children's um, because it it was a small bleed, but it wouldn't stop. And there, um, looking back, the ER docs were concerned by what they saw, but we saw it as completely consistent with hematomas. We didn't see the growths that were in the same area as his injury as possibly anything to do with cancer. And there were hints, they were saying it wasn't safe for him to go home. They wanted to run some tests. Um, they suspected that it was cancer. Um, well, a couple days into that, um, I had gone back to work while my wife stayed up at Children's with Andrew and um, they had wanted to do another procedure and I think one of the doctors said, we, we suspect there's a mass, but I think we both thought that mass in that location was a blood clot from his injury. Then another surgeon came in and because things were happening very quickly, just made a reference to it and said, but we have to do something about the sarcoma. Um, and that was when we found out. And it was just because of the... Um, sort of hecticness of the situation, the fact that it was kind of becoming kind of emergent. Um, I, think is, I think it was difficult to have that moment where someone just sat down and said it. They were getting information in real time and needing to act on it quickly. So that was the first we heard. And then um, he had some embolization coils put in to stop bleeding. And for the next couple of days, we were toggling back and forth between this idea of cancer and then what was the cancer and what was uh, residue from the accident. And it wasn't really until maybe three days into it um, when I asked a nurse if I could see his lung CT results because um, we were waiting for the doctor and hadn't gotten them yet. And she let me, she let me see, she called them up on the screen and I saw that his lungs were filled with hundreds of little nodules and about five of them were large enough to track that it hit me that this has nothing to do with the accident. It's just, um, a strange coincidence, um, that he ended up with a cancer, uh, in the same area. And so I think it dawned on me over time, but I toggled back and forth between not getting it, getting it, hoping it was just the accident. Um, but what I will say is when his oncologist was assigned to him 
after everything was, all the tests were complete, we sat down with her and she was incredible. And she said, the first thing she said was, your son has a very rare and aggressive form of cancer um, and doesn't have a good prognosis. Some parents choose to treat this very aggressively and others choose milder approaches. And I want you to know that we're going to support you, whatever you choose. Mm. So while there was a tremendous amount of uncertainty and a lot of, um, a lot of not really knowing when we did finally have everything all ironed out and we knew what we were dealing with, I couldn't have asked for a better introduction to one of the most uh, painful and difficult conversations of my life. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It strikes me as profoundly empowering to have a, a leader of a team of experts who are, who are caring for your son to grant your family the agency to choose the treatment path that you felt was best for you and best for your son. It was a game-changing moment. I had entered this thinking having a different model of cancer of this image of the aggressive oncologist who will do anything except think about quality of life. And in some cases that's very true. Um, but I think pediatric oncology has a very different culture than adult oncology and the sarcoma community is small, but very, uh, well integrated and, um, they're, they're very cohesive and collaborative. I think the entire culture there is one of choice and autonomy. Um, and throughout the entire uh, duration of Andrew's illness, they really emphasized his level of choice, his autonomy. Um, and they were very honest about outcomes, what we could expect, and when not to get our hopes up. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So you had different opportunities early on. You could pursue an aggressive form of treatment, or you could pursue more of a palliative form. What did you choose? And, and can you talk to us about what that treatment path looked like for Andrew in your family? Sure. So basically what we had seen happen from the middle of March to the end of May, just that short time, we had seen cancer um, develop. It probably was there before the accident, but nowhere near detectable. Um, we had seen it develop into stage four metastatic highest risk in just a few months. Uh, rhabdomyosarcoma, like many of the sarcomas, is a beast. It grows um, extremely quickly and aggressively. And so in that short time, we saw what would happen if this cancer were allowed to continue you know, without treatment. At the same time, we also knew that it's extremely rare that maybe 250 kids a year are diagnosed with it. Of those 250, there's sufficient variation in the location, the size, the staging, 
that not every child is even comparable. So there's a, a real lack of research. The best research they had was pretty abysmal in terms of um, the outcomes, but the best research that they had and the most rigorous um, treatment was actually the, a multi-agent um, year-long, actually 54-week-long treatment um, consisting of about seven or eight different chemotherapies in different stages. Um, some were inpatient, some were um, outpatient, and that would include radiation at a separate facility um, and multiple supportive medications to um, you know, deal with some of the side effects of chemo. And so this, the roadmap that they gave us, um, ARST0431, I'll probably never forget it, um, was the best chance we had to at least prolong his life and improve his quality of life. Um, and we talked to Andrew very, um, very frankly about it. After we broke the news to him about having cancer, we talked about not so much the statistics and the odds, but about the limitations and the unknowns and that this snuck up on us. We have this information now that will help us deal with it. It'll take us so far and there are no promises. Um, and we told him also about the side effects. Um, we told him as much as we could because we wanted really his informed assent we wanted him to say yes, but we wanted him to feel like he had a choice. Um, and he ultimately chose to go through with it. Um, he chose to go through this very grueling 54-week um, treatment. Um, and interestingly enough, it, it, in hindsight, it was the right choice. It wasn't just the best treatment we had. It was the only treatment, really. Um, mm we wouldn't have had the last year. We would have probably only had a couple months. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I think what, what settles with me when I hear you go back to those moments is that while his friends were returning to school, in September of that year. And they were in sixth grade. Is that right, Joe? Yep. Sixth okay. grade. So they were returning to school in September for their sixth grade. They were learning arithmetic and social studies. And Andrew was learning about multimodality treatment for a type of cancer that most of our listeners will not have heard of. So rare, only 250 people, 250 kids every year are diagnosed. Um, I can't begin to imagine um, what that felt like for Andrew and your family, right, to really be in the midst of a, a new normal when everybody else's projected um, back to school routines were unfolding. You you lived a very different a very different life at that point. Mm -hmm. um, I, I I will never forget visiting both you and Andrew in the hospital that fall, and mm -hmm. 
Andrew uh, jokingly kept telling me that you were harassing his nurses, Joe. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah. <laughs> Funny how quickly you adapt to uh, to a new abnormal, right? <laughs> yes. Yes. He, um, you know, he that was Andrew. He he took cancer and he made it like everything else, a blank canvas. He just created out of it. And what he created was his usual mix of bizarre, humorous, and ingenious. Um, he, yeah. So a lot of, a lot of what got us through that, those treatments and got us through the sort of deep existential conversations we had about mortality at age 12 um, what got a, what got him to stay motivated to continue treatment um, was his ability to kind of make fun of everything as it went um, as it went along, including me. Yeah. <laughs> um, the first time he met with his psychiatrist, and he didn't like to be alone with anyone new for at the hospital for a long time. But he had a wonderful um, psychiatrist, great behavioral health team. Um, excellent care all around at Nationwide. Um, but the first time he met alone with a psychiatrist, I left the room so that he could have some privacy. And when I came back, um, they were in the middle of a conversation and I heard him saying, yeah, and so I even catch my dad in the middle of the night under my covers with a flashlight playing with my catheter. <laughs> I looked at him so after the conversation was done and like I said, you little turd, you knew exactly what you were doing. And what he was doing was, um, you know, willfully exploiting uh, something that did happen, just not the way he presented it. He did have a catheter. He did. Um, he, <laughs> he did me at night with a flashlight, it was clogging. And so I, every now and then I would wake up and just make sure it, if I squeezed the tube, it would allow it to unclog and he wouldn't have a bladder spasm. But of course he knew that by presenting the story this way to a psychiatrist in their first meeting, um, that he was framing me for something. Um, so I don't know how long he had planned that or how long, but that was just one of the many things um, that uh, he did, like you had observed when you came in and saw mm, mm-hmm, joking mm-hmm. around and teasing me and nurses. That was mm-hmm, how we handled mm-hmm. it. His mantra, uh, which I heard him speak many times and then later had the privilege of seeing in his journal, um, I have cancer, it doesn't have me. Mm-hmm. And that irreverence is reflected in the story that you just shared. Yeah. Yeah. He's 12 years yeah. old, but that kind of wisdom and grace could come from him. And it's just incredible. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So Andrew, Andrew was the one who received treatment that 54 week, um, seven to eight different chemos inpatient and outpatient. He was the one who got fitted for a mask for radiation but cancer is a shared experience. And this is something that you and I have discussed on numerous occasions. And we, we fundamentally believe that cancer and its care is communal, that 
that life-changing experiences are relational experiences. I suspect, for example, that there's not a member of your family, uh, canines included, um, mm-hmm. no aspect of the routines, the rituals that compose your family life that were untouched by cancer. I'm, I'm wondering if you can talk to us about um, how Andrew's cancer and his care were shared experiences in your family. Yeah, it was very much a, sh- a shared experience. It, um, we re- restructured our home based on whatever stage he was in, in terms of his treatment. Um, we restructured our calendars, our lives, um, basically on every week as we got new appointments and we waited for his blood tests. Um, our living room became a modified playroom. Um, I stopped working. I could only focus on one thing. So I went through all my sick days, went on FMLA and made this my singular focus. Amy, my wife, who's absolutely incredible and strong and and smart, was able to work and handle all the external relations of insurance and just working with people who wanted to help us. Um, she was the public face of everything, and I was sort of the private um, side to his care. Um, and our daughter, Emma, who had just turned 13 at the time of his accident, and then she was in halfway through being 13 when he was diagnosed, and um, it changed what she believed her teenage years would be like, um, changed uh, the kind of attention that she thought she would get from us or that we had wanted to give to her. Um, our focus had to become had to be on trying to save Andrew and give everyone the most normal experience we could among this really abnormal circumstance. Um, But at the same time, we were able to kind of do this together. Emma and Andrew were only about 14, 15 months apart. They're incredibly close. All their lives, they'd been incredibly close. They were for all intents and purposes, twins. Um, So I noticed that their little meetings that they would have, they would often have little meetings and talk a lot and laugh a lot together under normal circumstances. But they had more of those, I think, while he was sick. Sometimes at night, if one of them couldn't sleep, they would meet in the hallway between uh, their two rooms and have a powwow, usually kind of making fun of me or something I did or said or uh, making fun of Amy or something like that. Um, It brought them even closer, I think. Uh, but we had to rearrange everything and try to pr- do whatever we could to preserve some sort of normalcy. And what it turned out to be in terms of that normalcy was relationships. If we could just preserve who we are fundamentally, if we could preserve the way we relate to each other, then cancer becomes just an external circumstance that we rearrange our physical lives around. But we keep our hearts where they were before, connected to each other. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What did you learn about yourself, Joe, during during this journey where you were the private side to care, Amy became the public face and coordinator, the social worker of the family? 
What did you learn about yourself, about her, about your daughter? I learned really something I had always known about both of them, but I learned how incredibly strong they are. Um, Amy, you know, as a mother, I, I mean, I can't even imagine what it's like as a mother to have shared a body and grown a child and then to watch that child um, get sick with a terminal illness and later die. I can't even imagine that. But the courage and strength she has is unlike anything um, I've ever seen. She was able to function. She was able to go to work. She was able to ask for help when she needed it. Um, and she was able to be present in every moment. Um, she took care of everybody. She took care of all three of her kids, as I like to say, because I was quite a handful. Um, I learned that she and Emma handle stress much better than I do. Mm. Um, Emma is incredibly graceful. She managed to kind of raise herself during this period. She got all straight A's. She performed beautifully in volleyball. And she had the wisdom to, to know when she should take care of herself and do things with her friends and have a normal teenage life. She asked us questions when she wanted to know answers. We, she let me know several times when I was um, not asking her questions that I should be. For example, she went away on a trip to DC. I went to pick her up uh, after that class trip. And on the way home, all I did was launch into, oh my gosh, it's chaos. You should see this, this, and this are happening. And then Andrew's friends are doing this. And um, she said, okay, well, how about you ask me about my trip? Mm -hmm. <laughs> and I thought, wow, she is, she's just so strong, so smart, um, and so graceful to have uh, given me the opportunity to course correct like that. So mm -hmm. if anything, um, losing Andrew has made me realize just how much I already have in Amy and Emma. That's beautiful. Thank you for sharing that. Um, on, on numerous occasions, I also have heard you really commend the communal support that rose around your family. And something that you shared with me once that has, has always stayed with me Joe, you said the only thing that outpaced the growth of Andrew's cancer was the growth of community surrounding us. It's potent. It remains potent to me. Can you unpack that for us? Yeah, it, it, it was an incredible thing. It's a little surreal, too. Um, it was like there were two parallel worlds happening. There was cancer world where my life was steeped in keeping up with Andrew's treatment, keeping up with the latest imaging and test results, trying to stay however many steps ahead of this rapidly proliferating tumor um, that could double in size in just the course of two weeks. And then the parallel story surrounding us um, was that the, it seemed like the 
entire world. It really felt that way. It felt like the whole world around us just mobilized and just outran cancer. Um, you know, um, no cells could multiply as quickly as all the cards we received. Um, there were fundraisers. There were donations. Um, there were events, large events, public events, small things like people wearing his Andrews Avengers t-shirts. Um, uh, there was a, a meal or two every single day dropped off at our house for over a year and a half, starting with his accident and then past his funeral. The amount of texts, cards, just simple emails saying, checking in with you. I just want to let you know I miss seeing you at work. Little things like that, whether it was a, a check from a fundraiser or just that simple text from one person, um, the amount of generosity and the way uh, our entire community, the university, everyone in my department, at the College of Business, the way everyone took whatever resources they had um, at their disposal and they used those things to, to come to Andrew's sort of side and, and stand with him through this. And it was the most incredible thing. And I think it was just amazing good fortune that you and I happened to meet so many years ago, long before this, um, because again, with your experience with Turn It Gold and Passion Works and, and having written books on the new normal of cancer, right? Um, the late effects of cancer and the stories of, of pediatric cancer, all of that meant that you had this whole repository at your disposal that you could then um, apply to us. And it was just, it was overwhelming in the absolute best sense of the word. Um, every, I mean, people we didn't even know were sending cards, well wishes. His entire sixth grade class would come down to our house. They would walk down the street to our house on Fridays and meet him on the front lawn with his two dogs um, and just cheer him up for five minutes. And then they would all march back to school. Um, it was all of these gestures, every single one of them, no matter how big or small, um, that just it, each one was like the antidote to um, all the effects of chemo and the misery of having this horrible disease. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I, I I'm still we're still the recipients of so much goodwill and generosity, and it's now a year later. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Over the past um, 15 years, walking on this journey with families, one thing that I've come to to deeply believe is that uh, sometimes we hold science in one hand and technology in the other, and we have nothing, no hands left to hold what's most really important. Um, chemo, radiation, and surgery, all of those modalities can be life-saving, and my family's benefited from them. But they alone cannot address the vulnerability and the suffering that accompanies cancer and in particular childhood cancer and, and the isolation that accompanies that. And so uh, 
what I hear you talking about. And I want to drill deeper into some of those specific groups and activities, but all of that is a reminder to me that when we understand cancer care is communal, we have an enlarged sense of what it means to heal. And what it means to heal does not always mean a cure, mm -hmm. but it can mean solidarity. And it, it can mean um, people who answer that suffering in ways that traditionally lies beyond what, what biomedicine can offer. Mm-hmm. So let's let's drill down. One of the groups that I that you mentioned that I want to go back to. Um, you talked about Andrew's Avengers T-shirts. Mm -hmm. um, I have one myself. I have a picture, I think, of of Andrew and I where I'm I'm wearing one. Um, talk to us about Andrew's Avengers because that was really a, an initial outpouring for um, your family uh, of support. Yeah, it was, a, it was a wonderful thing. Shortly after the diagnosis, um, you know, while we were still kind of reeling from it, um, a group of very varied people um, kind of came together and sort of formed this support and this sort of uh, campaign for Andrew, um, a way to, to sort of honor him, to let him know that people were rooting for him, to also support um, and offset some of the costs of, of treatment, of traveling to and from Columbus or uh, multiple times a week. So Andrew's Avengers, um, we got the name just based on the fact that he loved the Avengers movies um, and loved comics and loved superheroes. And we had used that a lot as a sort of metaphor for how to sort of uh, navigate through this experience. And so An Andrew's Avengers was started by this group of people who consisted of um, people from the College of Business at the Walter uh, Leadership Center, um, Amy mm -hmm. Toe, mm -hmm. Tim Reynolds. Um, uh, they had numerous students there who helped put up a website and they established a website for Andrew and then they made a logo. Um, Amy's best friend since childhood um, uh, was also involved. She lives out of state, but her husband, um, Pat Jones, owns a uh, T-shirt business. Um, and so he, together they donated T-shirts, had them printed with the Andrews Avengers logo, distributed, people bought them. My, my uh, mother-in-law, who is just an absolute powerhouse of positive energy, creativity, and she's just an amazing, an amazing soul and spirit. She navigated um, distributing, tracking all the orders uh, of t-shirts. She made sure they were all delivered and nicely packaged. Um, and so the website went up with information. Um, a meal train was started and um, my colleague and from my department and good friend Gillian Ice was also part of this. She set up a meal train. She made sure that we had food every single night from different sources. She coordinated a lot of that. Um, I know I'm going to be leaving people out because literally I could name every single person and their contribution, but it would take 
two or three times the length we have in the podcast. But Andrew's Avengers um, continues to grow uh, on Facebook. Um, I consider anyone that ever sent me a text message, ever just a sympathetic nod or anything to be part of that community. Um, And for Andrew, who was sequestered from most of the public events associated with um, Andrew's Avengers, he um, knew about every single thing. He loved seeing um, people from the Heritage College that I worked with wearing Andrew's Avengers t-shirts on a designated day that they made for him. Um, He loved when med students wore those t-shirts and made a little recorded video telling him to um, chin up and you know, be positive and get through this. And he just loved it all. Um, and so Andrew's Avengers is still a forum where we kind of honor him, his legacy. We wear his t-shirts and um, we do that with pride. Um, he was our hero. Hi folks, Lynn breaking in for just a second. We've been talking to Dr. Joe Bianco, a clinical psychologist and associate professor of social and behavioral medicine at the Ohio University Heritage College of Osteopathic Medicine. Joe's professional work on trauma-centered care collided with his personal life when his son, Andrew, then 11 years old, was diagnosed with rhabdomyosarcoma. On our Facebook page, we provide links to articles related to Joe and his family's experience. And we encourage you to, to, to learn more by going to those links. Okay, back to the conversation. Andrew's Avengers partnered along the way with other groups. One of those you mentioned, Turn It Gold, Turn It Gold, for our listeners who are unfamiliar, is a nonprofit that is based in Houston, Texas, but the span of it of its work reaches across the U.S. Its mission is to change the landscape of cancer care and the amount of monies that are invested in research and treatment for kids. I think what most people are unaware of is that there's only 4% of federal funding from from the NCI that's dedicated specifically to childhood cancers, um, research and treatment. Most of the treatments for children have been designed for adult bodies, and they're um, adapted in hopes that, that they can be effective. Many of the survivors live with long-term late effects uh, of, of treatment. So Turn It Gold is one of many family-founded nonprofits who are trying to, to shift that scale, right? Shift the amount of money and resources and attention that is directed to childhood cancers. Um, one of the ways it does that is by partnering with athletic teams across the U.S. from Clemson, Texas A&M, at Ohio University, where we're at, in September of 2018, Andrew received a bravery medal from Turn It Gold. Um, it was presented to him by the OU volleyball team, which I think was particularly memorable because his sister is a volleyball player. Mm-hmm. And uh, right, there's a connection there. Andrew's Avengers were, were in the audience. 
in a recent article that was published by Dr. Jill Yamasaki and colleagues at University of Houston, you are quoted in that article and you describe the bravery medal as an extended release blessing. I think that mm. that metaphor is powerful. Can you talk to us about how participating in, in that event, um, having, having the presentation of that bravery medal, um, how did that become an extended release blessing for Andrew and your family? Um, well, to understand that, it's important to kind of think of the context in which he got that that medal. It was perfectly timed. Um, so he was still at an early point in his treatment. Um, the burden of the disease was far worse than the burden of chemotherapy at, um, at that point and actually throughout his entire treatment. It was always the burden of cancer that was worse for him, but the burden was high. He had um, still had very pronounced tumors in his throughout his midsection. He was wheelchair bound. He had a catheter bag. He was underweight. He was tired. Um, he was scared, um, and he was self-conscious. He was basically bedridden, uh, and some days it would take a couple hours for us to get him from his bed, in his bedroom, to the couch on the living room. So for him to, for him to have an award at that time at first was... It was something that he couldn't wrap his mind around. Um, I would say that before we even get to the extended release, there's an immediate release effect. Um, so the immediate release effect was that this award, just the idea of it opened up a conversation that lent a lot of clarity to how we would then proceed with the rest of our um, year of treatment. Uh, it set the tone for how we were going to frame having cancer, how we were going to approach it, and the choices we were going to make. Because his first response when I told him about it was, he looked a little dejected and he said, well, I don't want an award for having cancer. And I didn't know that that's how he might have misconceived it. And I didn't know that he was feeling very um, much isolated and also very much like he didn't want special treatment for being sick. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. This allowed us, though, to talk about what the award meant. And here's where the uh, extended release comes in. It allowed us to kind of unpack something that I didn't know was in his thought processes, and maybe he didn't know until he articulated it. But it allowed us to kind of differentiate between sort of passively receiving something or a sympathy vote or a consolation prize to actually earning something through the everyday difficult choices that he was making. Every aspect of his treatment ultimately was his choice. He knew that we would say, we would tell him that it was okay if he said no, or he wanted to stop treatment. Um, he knew that we would say yes to that and agree to it if it became too much. Um, 
And every single day in this early phase before the treatment started to work and before he had anything but side effects, um, no positive results. And when he was at his most miserable, we were able to have a conversation about what it means to be brave. And bravery isn't getting a cancer diagnosis. It's making choices after it. It's still living through it. It's still seeing your friends. Um, it's still saying yes every time I handed him one of his many sets of medications. Um, he, it's doing wound care every day. He had consented to so many different procedures. Um, sometimes twice a week, he would say yes to um, conscious sedation um, procedures uh, for wound care and having his wound vac changed. So all of these things, every time he said yes to something, that was a choice he made and an example of why he deserved this award. And that allowed us to reframe everything. Uh, it gave him a sense of agency and autonomy because I, it's what we really wanted. We did not want to make decisions for him at this age. We wanted to make decisions with him. And it made him realize all the things that he did day in, day out that maybe weren't otherwise noteworthy to anyone else, but just brushing his teeth when he was too tired letting me change his bandage. All of those things were brave acts. And um, so then uh, once we got through that, he couldn't have been happier and prouder to appear in his wheelchair, skinny as a rail, weak, um, but surrounded by the volleyball team and his sister and his family. Um, <laughs> he had a big grin uh, during that. And uh, he absolutely had the time of his life that night. And then following that night, he wore that medal um, everywhere. And it, and it became this amazing conduit, um, this great sort of social lubricant in a way, because every time he had to encounter a new physician or a new nurse, a new procedure, a new uh, consultation, he would have this around his neck and it would be an instant conversation starter. Anyone who was perceptive and so many, there's so many good childcare providers of all types. Um, they would say, you know, a nurse would say, hey, what is that around your neck? It, that looks like quite an, a metal. And he would tell them and it, it became something that allowed him to feel comfortable, that made him feel strong enough to continue making his own decisions. It allowed him to say no or tell a mm. doctor, I want you to do this differently, or maybe you should ask or look with your hands, don't look with your hands, look with your eyes. Um, all those things that let him assert himself and be brave. Um, and he wore it even to radiation. He wore it when he was fitted for a radiation mask. He wore it when he was refitted after the tumors shifted and things took a turn for the worse. And he wore it right up until the moment where he had to lie on the radiation table. And then and only then would he hand it over to me and I would hold on to it in a separate room while he received treatment and then he would have it back again. It just um, it just meant so much to him and it was it was a simple thing, but it was a game changer. Mm -hmm. I appreciate your nuanced conversation about how it functioned, the process functioned to allow Andrew uh, to feel agency, to make choices, to exert that bravery 
And that bravery could be in the form of a yes. Yes, I, I want to take care of my wound, right? To, to offset any potential infection. Yes, I, I'm willing to get fitted for the mask. But bravery in the context of, of really life-changing care can also mean saying no. Mm-hmm. That depending on the context that to be brave can also be saying no. I do not want I do not want that. I do not want to pursue that path. And I think that that is a really important nuanced takeaway from our conversation as as people in their own lives and their own families and situations have to face making really difficult choices that um, bravery takes a lot of different faces and forms and it can mean saying yes and it can mean saying no, right? But but through all of that, the capacity to be as present as possible with those that you love, right? And and feeling like you have the courage to make that decision. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Can- cancer happens to people. They have no choice and it robs them of so much by way of choice and dignity and lifestyle and everything that they're used to. And this, I think this metal kind of, along with our insistence that he really become a, um, a front runner of his own care, um, really empowered him to, to say no when he wanted or to tell us, you know what, I don't want to see this, this person, or I don't like when they say things this way. If he didn't feel like he could tell them, we would. Um, and I really feel like it stemmed from that metal that hung around his neck. Um, it, it brought out for him the courage that he already had inside, but that he needed a tangible reminder of. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. All the while, Emma also participated in meaningful events um, in support of her brother and in some cases in spaces that he wouldn't have been able to be a part of because of the need for isolation and the need to protect his immune system. So her and and many of her friends from her volleyball team at that time in junior high met with players from the OU volleyball team. They met in the studio of Passionworks, which is a community collaborative art center in Athens, Ohio. And purpose of that meeting was to um, turn it gold, right? And when I say turn it gold, I mean turn the community gold during the month of September in acknowledgement of September as National Childhood Cancer Awareness Month to turn it gold, to represent a solidarity with your family and with countless other families who were impacted right, by childhood cancers, to raise funds to, to address this, um, but to do that from an organic grassroots, um, creative impulse that also reflected the unique spirit of um, Andrew, 
right? So they created banners that ultimately hung from the the city streetlights and those traveled to the community center. And now some of those banners reside at your home and your garage where Andrew's friends still have a hangout and still come, right, to, mm-hmm. to be with your family and, and to remember him. Um, so it, it wasn't just Andrew who was who was involved in, in these activities. It, it, it was truly a family experience, his cousin, his friends, his sister. Um, when you look at those banners now, banners that um, once hung outside the church at his funeral in celebration of his life and, and now hang in your office on your front porch in your garage, um, when you look at those banners now, what do you see? What do you feel or know to be true for you? Well, I'm looking at one right now as we speak. Um, you know, they they look like they're they're just these bursts of color and happiness, and they remind me of all the art Andrew used to do as a child. They remind me of his creativity and. Um, it's, it's sort of Andrew put on canvas um, when the banners started going up throughout um, Athens. Um, when, when they started proliferating throughout town, uh, it was also an example of how, you know, the generosity and sort of antidotes to cancer, you know, just kind of outpaced the cancer itself. Mm-hmm. Um and now we have these banners. So in the garage, uh, in our garage, which was a very rundown two-car garage, um, but Andrew's Make-A-Wish, his final wish was that it be converted into a an incredible, magical play space for all his friends, um, a place so magical that they would never want to leave it. Um, and so we have his artwork up. We have their artwork. Um, and we have a passion flower with a penguin added to it. We have Turn It Gold. Um, banners, penguins, um, and all I think is it's just it's just his soul on canvas. Um. Mm, mm. For me, when I see those penguins on, um, whether it's a painting or it's a three dimensional metal flower. Uh, that's produced of upcycled printer plates that would have otherwise been discarded. When I see those, I'm reminded that this is not a commercial top-down buy a bottle of laundry detergent that has a pink cap on it and a certain amount of money will be donated. Although certainly there's, there's a place for some of that social marketing if it's done from a holistic place where we ensure that the companies have a, a business model that re- reduces and eliminates risks of their products for cons- for cancer, just as they might on the other end provide support um, to mitigate some of the effects. So there's a place for that. But what is different about this is that it is a responsive, um, creative um not producing any new items, certainly just upcycling materials that already exist, re-envisioning them, but doing so in a spirit that reflects individuals' creativity and 
individuals' unique passions and orientations to the world. So the penguins, right? The penguins remind me that Andrew adopted penguins <laughs> because he loved them, right? He loved penguins. Uh, when, yeah, he, um, and ever since he was a kid, um, he used to ask to have a penguin. Um, he persisted and, you know, even the last couple years of his life, he'd try to woo me by saying things like, you know, penguins poop every 15 minutes. Isn't that cool? <laughs> not helping. Um, <laughs> he was younger during swim lessons. I used to watch him walk. When he got out of the pool, he would walk with his arms straight out and then he would walk in this lopsided fashion. And I watched all the other boys on the team do the same thing. And I never understood what he was doing until Amy told me, oh yeah, he's walking like a penguin. Um, he just loved penguins. Um, uh, <laughs> and you mentioned upcycling too. Uh, you know, Passionworks using all these known materials um, and turning them into art. Um, Andrew was the ultimate upcycler. You know, he, he when he was little, he, um, you know, he wanted matchbox cars, just like lots of little boys do. He was obsessed with matchbox cars, but it, but it was never enough for him. Instead, he and his friend Jacob had to take those matchbox cars and immerse them in big tubs of Ritz dye, <laughs> all these different colors, and put tape on them in certain patterns and leave them there on our dining room table, threatening to <laughs> stain everything. Um, he had to dye his cars and take them out after two weeks. He had to put things in the freezer. He had to grab everything out of our garbage and make things out of it. That was who Andrew was. And so when I think of Passionworks, um, it just seemed like a soulmate to his kind of whole way of approaching the world. Like everything's a blank canvas. Everything can be turned into something positive. And, and that's what Andrew did with cancer. He took his medical equipment and he repurposed it. He took his wheelchair and he and five of his friends worked tirelessly with box cutters and cardboard and PVC pipes and spray paint. And they they created this um, Halloween costume out of it, spray painted it gold um, in honor of turn it gold and pediatric cancer. Um, they He repurposed everything. His catheter bag would have a name. He would put pictures on it. Um, there was nothing that couldn't be made into art, um, no matter how irreverent. Um, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And there's something to that approach, right? That way of life that you see with passion works and that sort of, the, that, that way of looking at the world where even cancer can become a blank canvas. Thank you for the the privilege of of um, being able to glimpse more deeply into his journey through the stories that you share, through the journals that that you shared. Um, in those journals, he talks about the many procedures and the many people, right? And sometimes how he would wake up with dread, and he's very honest about that. But when talking about what got him through. I just want to share a quote from that, from one of the journal passages. When I'm sad, I think of how only Emma, Jake, or the dogs could cheer me up. Jakey, who never fails to make me laugh. Scamp, who would guard me with his life. 
Patch, who always pees on things when he knows I'm sad. <laughs> my dad, who always asks if I'm okay every five seconds. <laughs> my mom, who could always tell what I needed and would help me sleep at night. That's how I get through. Those are... Um, it's part of Andrew's legacy that I think can inspire all of us right, to uh, move through the world with just a little bit more irreverence. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. And he certainly excelled at that and in a way gave me permission to, um, to be far more irreverent in public spaces than I ever would have normally been. Mm-hmm. It's how we dealt. It's how we dealt with the gravity and the seriousness of cancer, and you know, um, mm-hmm. one one of his more irreverent things that he said to me once. He he knew that I had a tremendous respect for all healthcare professionals, but that the one thing I couldn't tolerate was um, poor sort of communication skills or any kind of. Um, lack of acknowledgement of him as his own independent person. And it was extremely rare that we ever had people that um, didn't have the best humanistic skills and warmth. But on the very rare occasions, um, there were a couple that I didn't like their approach. I didn't like the way they just kind of helped themselves to things because they were in a rush, um, the way they didn't include him in conversations. And um, a couple of them happened to be during urology consults. And for the most part, they were wonderful, but there were just a couple that weren't, weren't that great. And um, I felt like I could really tell them that, um, <laughs> you know, and it, it was a, it was a really good thing. I was felt that I could let them know that they had to treat him a certain way, that this was not um, about them. This was about him. And, but later that all translated to him um, telling one of the, uh, behavioral health team members on the oncology unit that um, my you should see my dad when he starts terrorizing urologists. <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, that gave me that reputation. <laughs> mm. Mm. Sweet Andrew. Sweet, sweet Andrew. So it has been a year um, since he's passed, Joe. What has moved you to start sharing your experiences in public forums like this one? Um, I think I think I just want him to be known. I want Andrew to be known by people that have never met him and I want him to them to get him to see all the depth and the creativity and the life that was in him. He packed a lot into his 12 years. And um, I just, I, I don't know if I really believe he's gone. Um, I don't I don't know if I've come to terms with that. I don't think I've come to terms with the entire whirlwind of a year that we went through um, and everything that he experienced. But there, is he so deeply affected people and so profoundly shaped who I am. Um, and I want people to know him, even though it's hard to talk about. And I, 
like him. I don't, I don't like uh, a lot of attention. I don't like being center stage, but um, I just, I just want him to be known from the inside out for all the people that won't have the good fortune of crossing paths with him. Thank you. Thank you for, um, for joining us. Like the article in Health Communication that I referenced earlier, and that will be available for our listeners on our social media links. Um, we dedicate this podcast to Andrew and his legacy. Um, in doing so, I'd like to close by, by reading a portion of his obituary that was penned by his sister, Emma, if, if I have your permission to do so, Joe. Absolutely. Andrew is infinite. He is certainly not gone. Just follow his lead and you'll find him whenever you befriend a dog, stomp in a luscious mud puddle, conduct a, a covert experiment, the messier the better, abduct a toad, hatch a benign but mischievous plot, fall asleep in the comfort of a cardboard box, walk like a penguin, rename conventional cuddlers, wizard white, refer to your parents as old tacos, embrace eccentricity, create new and unclassifiable Lego minifigures, trick and treat, act first, seek permission later, love your sister dearly, swing on a branch or wade in a stream, wear bright comfy pajamas, preferably at work or school, Announce signs of spring in the dead of winter. Bring whole universes in your imagination. Start a controversial trend and feign innocence when it goes viral. Listen to your head while following your heart. Practice subversion with a smile. Evade authority. Face adversity head on with courage determination, and infinite irreverence. Fear nothing, love everyone, and when you reach for a star, proudly proclaim, I got it. Mercy. Mercy, that is part of the Andrew that I came to know. Hmm. Joe and Beyond knowing him, I, I hope that listeners, as we are all experiencing the social isolation that has accompanied the coronavirus, probably nothing else could simulate the sort of social isolation that a, a cancer patient and and his or her loved ones might feel the need to, to physically distance, the need to wash hands methodically, mm. um, the, the need to, 
to be militant in how you mitigate risks. All of us are, are living that now, right? What you lived, right, for a different reason. I hope that your family's story, as it continues to evolve and unfold, that it can help all of us when we think about what it is that we need to become um, and what it is that we need to sustain ourselves and, and what can fill the empty spaces in the, in the midst of that isolation. Mm. I, I hope that, um, I know that there are movable ideas and moments that will inspire people in ways that we can't imagine right now. I think the interview is a great start. Thank you, Joe. Thanks for uh, your friendship and, and for trusting me to um, share this conversation. For our listeners, thanks for joining Dr. Joe Bianco and I for this episode of Defining Moments podcast. Defining Moments is produced by WOUB Public Media and the Barbara Geralds Institute for Storytelling and Social Impact. Adam Rich is our co-producer. You can subscribe to Defining Moments at Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, or the NPR Podcast Directory. If you haven't done so, please follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at DM Podcast W-O-U-B. On our Facebook page, we provide links to articles about Andrew's Avengers, about Turnit Gold and, and the Bianco's participation in, in those moments. We hope you will take time to rate and review this podcast on, on Apple Podcasts. And by all means, go in peace and love one another. Mm-hmm.